Hey friends, welcome to the Highland Church Podcast. We believe that you were made for God's mission. We encourage you to check out our website, highlandcc.org, where you can learn more about what you are called to in Christ Jesus. Let's hear a message today that we hope will challenge, encourage you, and ultimately help you to grow and identify your purpose in the plan of God. We're going to be in Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 38 today. Mark 9, 38. So if you want to go there, if you've got a Bible, you can. If you, if you don't, don't worry about it. Words will be on the screen. If you're following along with us online, the words will be on the screen. That's where we'll be. E. Stanley Jones was a longtime, somewhat legendary missionary who did mission work in the late 1800s, early 1900s. He said that people need nothing so much in these modern times as they need a working philosophy of life, an adequate way to live, he says. I'll never forget that because I think he's on to something there. That it is not difficult to find a philosophy of life in this world. What's difficult is to find one that works, one that's working. And so with that in mind, I want us to pay attention to what Jesus says here in response to one of his disciples, John. And we're going to ask ourselves, is this philosophy of life workable? This is Mark 9, starting in verse 38. starts with something that John says to Jesus, one of his disciples. John said to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone throwing demons out in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Jesus replied, don't stop him. No one who does powerful acts in my name can quickly turn around and curse me. Whoever isn't against us is for us. And I assure you that whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will certainly be rewarded. Pay attention here. As for whoever causes these little ones who believe in me to trip and to fall into sin, It would be better for them to have a huge stone hung around their necks and to be thrown into the lake. If your hand causes you to sin, chop it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to go away with two hands into the fire of hell, which cannot be put out. If your foot causes you to fall into sin, chop it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than to be thrown into hell with two feet. If your eye causes you to fall into sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter God's kingdom with one eye than to be thrown into hell with two. That's a place where worms don't die and the fire never goes out. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt loses its saltiness, how can it become salty again? So maintain salt among yourselves and keep peace with each other. Dramatic drink of water. I've been reading this biography on Eric Little. Does that name ring a bell for you? If you've ever seen Chariots of Fire, you know who Eric Little is? Um, Little was a track and field sensation in the 1920s. He was the favorite to win gold in the 100-meter dash in the 1924 Olympics in Paris. He's also a very devout believer. 
And shortly before the Olympics, Little learns that the qualifying heat for the 100-meter dash is on a Sunday. Now, Little is, is, is part of a stream of the Christian faith which treats the Sunday as Sabbath day and regards it as holy. And so to him, to run on the Sabbath day would be to sin. And he's not willing to do it. And so the favorite, now think about this, we're heading up to the Olympics right now, the favorite for the gold medal withdraws on his own rather than run on a Sunday and sin against God. Now, he goes from national hero overnight to national villain. Newspapers excoriate him, government officials send Eric Little letters shaming him for not being patriotic and running for his country in the 1924 Olympics, but still he won't do it. He's got, he's got too much conviction for that. He won't do it. And you hear about somebody like that. Think about this. Somebody who believes what they believe so strongly that they would turn down a gold in the Olympics? You think about that and you think, I bet that kind of person is miserable to be around. You know, people with conviction, who believe what they believe, think everybody else is wrong, always looking down their noses at everybody else who believes something different. He's probably miserable to be around. But the thing is, Eric Little is beloved by everybody who knows him. In fact, his story goes on. I won't tell you everything about Eric Little's story, but I mean, it's pretty incredible. He goes on to become a missionary, and he goes to China after the Olympics. And in China, World War II breaks out, and he is placed in a Japanese internment camp in China where he's a prisoner. And while he's there, this man of conviction, there are these two stories that stick out in my mind that I place up beside his conviction, and they're stories you don't really know what to do with. The first is that in this camp, there's a prostitute, a woman who's a prostitute. And she's in kind of a bind in her little makeshift room in this internment camp. She doesn't have any shelves to place supplies on, and she can't find anybody who's willing to help her, even though there are men in and out of her room all day long. None of them will help her to hang these shelves. So she goes looking for somebody to help her hang these shelves. She finds Eric Little. Now, Eric Little absolutely condemns of what she's doing. You know what he does? He goes into her room, and he hangs the shelves. And she said afterwards, Eric Little is the only man who ever came into my room and didn't ask me for a favor. And then, not long after that, it's a Sunday, Sabbath day for Eric. And because he's the only Olympian in this internment camp, he has the job of overseeing the, the few sports supplies, sporting, sports equipment that they have there in the internment camp to keep the prisoners busy. They got some hockey sticks, some soccer balls, and so he keeps those locked away in a shed so they don't go missing. Well, on Sunday, he never goes to open them because it's the Sabbath day and you shouldn't be playing sports on the Sabbath in his mind. Well, one day, some teenagers, they go on a Sunday and they break into that shed because they're just going out of their minds with boredom. They break into the shed, they get out the hockey sticks, and they start this hockey match on this dirt field in the internment camp, and Eric Little finds out about it. But Eric doesn't march out onto the field and begin to lecture them about the Sabbath day and keeping it holy. He doesn't remind them, I was an Olympian in 1924. Have you not heard the story about how I withdrew from the 100-meter dash because I don't think you should be doing this on the Sabbath? You know what he does? He walks out there, and he referees their hockey match. 
Now, the reason I'm fascinated by, by Eric Little is because he seems to me to represent a philosophy of life, a working philosophy of life that the world will tell you does not work. Here's what I mean by that. On one hand, he's a person of great conviction. And on the other hand, he's a person of unimaginable grace. Conviction and grace in the same person? That doesn't work, right? I mean, the world will tell you that doesn't work. Uh, To put it positively, the world will tell you you're either committed to God's holiness or you're committed to God's love and you can't do both. To put it negatively, the world will tell you you're either closed-minded and judgmental or you don't take sin seriously. You just love and that you can't do both. And I think I read about little for the same reason I read my Bible because I have this haunting suspicion I don't have to buy what the world is selling me. We live in this polarized world where you're pushed to one of those two camps, and I have this suspicion you don't have to choose between those two, that there is this third way, and I'm hoping that there's somebody who'll show me how to do that, what that looks like. Conviction and grace together. And so look again with me at this passage here. Look again, starting in verse 38. It starts with, John, one of Jesus' disciples, telling him about something that happened to him. And this is what he said. John said to Jesus, teacher, we saw someone throwing demons out in your name, and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. Now, John may have said this a long time ago. This is all said this a long time ago, but it feels really timely to me because here's what he's saying. I saw somebody who's not on my team, and so I knew I had to stop him. I had to. I coached T-ball this year. I know you've all been praying for me, and so I appreciate that, and you knew that. And so um, there was this little boy on my T-ball team. Every inning, he would come up to me, and he'd say, Coach Eric, are we winning? (laughs) Let me just let you in on a secret. We don't keep score in T-ball, okay? because nothing that happens on that field is worth keeping track of, <laughs> okay? There's no scouts there or anything, okay. And so, uh, but do I tell him that? No, he says, Coach Eric, are we winning? And I say, you bet we're winning. And then he would say this every time, it's because we're better than them, aren't we? And I'd say, well, Jesus says, son, that, The first will be like, no, I say, yeah, you're right. We're better than them. Of course we're better than them. Look at us, is what I'd say to him, right? Okay, here's here's the thing, right? This world convinces us we need to be on a team and that there's great comfort from being on a team, especially when you can say, my team is better than the other team. There's great consolation. So much consolation that it gives meaning to your life, the team that you're on. I'm on this team, and we're the winning team. Like your whole life becomes oriented around the team that you're on. Look what happens to John. Notice what he says. He doesn't say, hey, Jesus, we saw this guy who was doing this thing, and we stopped him because he wasn't following you. What, are they, what does he say? I tried to stop him. Why? Because he wasn't following us. 
You, know, you can imagine Jesus kind of cocks his eye at him and he's like, wait, whose team do you think this is? It's all about him. But look what Jesus says to him. Jesus replied, don't stop him. No one who does powerful acts in my name can quickly turn around and curse me. Whoever is in against us is for us. I assure you that whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will be rewarded. He's saying there's more people on your team than you think. Years ago, our church started doing this area-wide initiative called Jesus Loves Memphis. You remember this? It was a, a day where there was a hundred some odd service projects scattered around our city and churches from all over the city every kind of church joined together to pull off these hundred or so service projects. And so, I mean, it was every kind of church, Baptist church, uh, Pentecostal church, Methodist church, churches of Christ, all kinds of churches coming together to serve our city and communicate our love to the city. And so leading up to Jesus Loves Memphis, every year we would have these pastors and ministers get togethers, lunches, where we would talk about these service projects and who was coming and who was bringing the shovels or the spray paint or whatever it was. And I'll never forget at the start of one of those meetings, one of these ministers from a church, I don't even remember, he gets up and he looks out. He says, you know, in this room, we believe some different things. I bet we could not plant a church together. But you know what? We can pick up trash together in Jesus' name. And I thought, yes. Yeah. Our differences are not insignificant. They matter a great deal. He's right. We probably couldn't plant a church together. There are some things that we disagree on. Can we serve this world together in the name of Jesus? Absolutely. Can we cast out evil in the name of Jesus together? You bet. You know, Jesus is saying to John something that's surprising to him. This is not what he expected. He's saying, John, your team is bigger than you think. You don't have to spend all your energy trying to stop people who are using my name, disagreeing with people about everything. You don't have to do that. You don't have to draw these lines in the sand all the time. John, I want you to be a person of grace. Be a person of grace. Well, we hear that and we think that's a slippery slope. That's a slippery slope. Right? That, that kind of open-mindedness, the open-mindedness that's required of a gracious person means that I cannot have firm convictions. I can never say you've gone too far, you've crossed the line, and you're now dishonoring the one whose name you're using. You can't be a person of grace and a person of conviction. Well, if you think that's true, look at the very next thing out of Jesus' lips. Look at this. Look at the very next thing he says. As for whoever causes these little ones, and in the context that probably means the spiritually immature, whether those are children or just new believers. Okay, whoever causes these little ones who believe in me to trip and to fall into sin, it would be better, it would be better for them to have a huge stone hung around their neck and be thrown into the lake. If your hand causes you to fall into sin, chop it off. It's better to enter life crippled than to go away with two hands into the fire of hell which cannot be put out. If your foot causes you to fall into sin, chop it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than to be thrown into hell with two feet. If your eye causes you to fall into sin, tear it out. 
It's better for you to enter God's kingdom with one eye than to be thrown into hell with two. That's a place where worms don't die and the fire never goes out. Everyone will be salted with fire. And salt is good, but if salt loses its saltiness, how can it become salty again? Maintain salt among yourselves and keep peace with each other. All right. Anyone who thinks that Jesus is soft on sin has never read this. I've heard it said that a politician can never win an office by saying, we're going to be soft on crime. And some people think that Jesus is soft on sin. Some people think that hell is a fabrication of Paul and other early disciples, and it was something that Jesus didn't talk about. It must not be real. Anybody who thinks that has never read what Jesus has to say about hell. Okay. Um, what's Jesus saying here? People who cause other people to sin are in big trouble. What we do matters. In fact, there are things that you do that can get you in a place you don't want to be, a place where even the worms don't want to be, sin is as serious as hell. He says. So Jesus has some conviction here. And yet we sense, well, if I had that kind of conviction, if that was my posture towards the world, nobody's going to like me. I'm going to be like this big wet blanket that's thrown over the world's party, right? Don't do that. Better not do that. Oh, that's wrong for sure. You're probably going to hell. Nobody's going to like me. And is, is, that what it, is that what it looks like to have conviction? Look again at this passage. Whose sin is he talking about here? Look at this. He absolutely condemns those who cause others to sin. There's absolutely a place for intervening when someone is causing others to sin. But then, whose sin does he start talking about? If your hand causes you to fall into sin, if your eyes cause you to fall into sin, if your foot causes you to fall, whose sin is he talking about? Well, my sin, right? Mine. He's talking about me. He's talking about having conviction about the seriousness of the things that I do. He's saying, I want you to be convicted. I want you to have boundaries. I want you to be absolutely sure about the seriousness of your sin. Don't pretend your sin is not a big deal. It is a very big deal. It's as serious as hell. Okay, so let's step back here. And just let me summarize. The two things that Jesus says in the same breath, did you catch it? The first thing he says, there are more people on my team than you think. Which means there are more people on your team than you think. And so you don't have to spend all of your time and your energy fighting all those fights about who's wrong and who's right. There's more people on our team than you think. So be a person of grace. And then in the very next breath, he says, but your sin is serious. And when someone causes other people to sin, it is going to be really bad for them. So don't do that. 
And you better watch out what you're doing. You better have strong boundaries in your life because your sin is deadly serious. I need you to be a person of absolute conviction. Do you, you, in the same breath, he says, you need to be a person of grace and you need to be a person of conviction. How does that work? You with me? How do you, how does that work? I spent all week thinking about that. Um, you know, I, I kind of spent my week going back and forth between those two things. And I think what tends to happen is that the way we're hardwired uh, leads us to lean in one direction or the other. Some of us are people who have really strong convictions and think about right and wrong really clearly, and so we lean towards that direction. Some of us are more inclined towards love and grace. We want to avoid conflict, and so we lean in that direction. And somehow Jesus stands right in the middle of those two and says, no, I want you to be a person of absolute conviction and a person of absolute grace. So he's not leaning And so all week long, I'm going back and forth between those two. How do I be a person of grace and a person of conviction, person of grace, person of conviction? I'm thinking about all these situations in my own life, the situation in the lives of our people here. Is it grace or conviction? They need grace or conviction. I'm going back and forth between the two things Jesus says all the time, skipping over the one who's saying both of them. I was thinking about Daniel this week. Daniel the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, the fiery furnace. That's what VBS is about. You know, Daniel and his buddies are sent into Babylonian exile. They come into the king's throne room. Here's a guy and Nebuchadnezzar doing a lot of things they don't approve of. And so here's kind of the two routes that they can go through to, uh, to, or they can go down to influence this guy. One, they can condemn everything he does so that he knows he's a terrible person. And I'm wondering, do you, like, is that going to go over well with Nebuchadnezzar? Okay. The other route is that they can just love him to death. Nebuchadnezzar, you're such a good dude. We're so glad to be here. We love you. But then how's he ever going to change? You know, what's he going to learn about God? from that because he's doing some terrible things. And so what do they do? Well, when they're told to eat things that they're not willing to eat, when they're told to worship this king that they're not willing to worship, this is what they say. We can't because we have only one God and he's the one we serve. They've got this focus on just one. They're thrown into the fiery furnace. They're rescued from the fiery furnace. And when they come out, this king, whose heart would not have been changed by condemnation, whose heart would not have been changed by love, sees what happens to them when they honor God with both grace and conviction. And this is what he says. There is no God who can rescue like yours. Like they change the very heart of the most powerful person in the world by treating him with grace, but being people of absolute conviction. How do you do that? Thing is, Jesus doesn't give us a formula here. He doesn't, he doesn't tell us. He says, I want you to be a person of absolute grace and absolute conviction. And so here's what I think. 
I'm reminded of what the author of Hebrews says. He says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. I'll tell you a little secret as we go. Whenever I'm in a difficult situation where I'm struggling to know what to do, whenever I feel convicted by my own sin, whenever I'm in a meeting um, and the way forward isn't clear to me, when I've made a mistake, when I've offended my beautiful bride, when I've hurt somebody I love, I I have formed this habit, and I'll just share it with you, because I find myself always wrestling between these two, conviction and grace. And so I have formed this habit to help me know what to do in those situations. It's pretty simple. It's a little prayer. It goes like this. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. It's a breath prayer. As I breathe in, I think, Lord Jesus Christ. As I breathe out, I think, have mercy on me. It's a plea. It's a plea for God in Jesus Christ to make clear to me what is unclear. To remind me of who I am. To remind me of my deep sin, my deep need for his guidance. To remind me that I'm not gonna save the world. I'm not the key, the master plan that he is and that I need him. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. And I find that in the moments I stop and pray that, it usually turns out okay. Like somewhere in the space between conviction and grace is this working way of life. But apart from the person of Jesus, that way of life is not workable. We need him really badly.